All right, good morning to everyone. Hopefully you're logging on from some remote spot, maybe under some shade. Glad that you are with us. Uh, yesterday, our Wednesday night uh, cell group met for a first-time dinner together at Ben and Chili's backyard. It was absolutely awesome to see people in person. I hope that you are starting to get out and to enjoy some fellowship face-to-face, which is great. Before I get into my message, I want to just add a little detail. Uh, when Caleb was sharing the picture that he had about being stuck and being in sticky stuff and God wanting to take you out, I just felt like the Lord was saying, too, that he wants you to praise him while you're still in the stuck place. Uh, not to praise him after he delivers you, but begin your praising while you're in that place where you feel like, boy, uh, you really need God to extricate you. So just an encouragement that God is always worthy of praise. And when we bring a sacrifice of praise, it just preps our heart even more uh, to receive the blessing that God has for us. Okay, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is where I'm going to be uh, sharing from today. We are finishing our series from the life of David as we've taken uh, this journey the last six months, uh, going through First and Second Samuel. The final details of David's life actually go into and they bleed over uh, in the book of First Kings, chapters 1 and 2, where David passes on his kingship to his son uh, Solomon. But for, day, for today's message, uh, we're going to end our study by looking at a cautionary tale uh, from David's life. And so we're going to read along here the first 10 verses from chapter 24. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he incited David against them. Take note of that phrase because we're going to come back to that. Saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab, who is David's general, replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. And may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Crossing the Jordan, they camped near uh, Aror, south of the town in the gorge, and then went through, God, uh, went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead, the region of Tatim, Hadshi, and on to Danjean and around towards Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyra and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. So this was a countrywide uh, census that they were taking. They had to go throughout the land. And we read, after they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. So we're talking about David's census mistake this morning, and the title of my message is Count Your Blessings, Not Your Glory. Count Your Blessings, Not Your Glory, The Sin of Pride. And as a backdrop to this story, we're going to answer the two complicated questions that surfaced when we read in verse 1. Number one, did God really incite David to sin, as the text seems to imply? 
And number two, why was God's wrath against the whole nation when it was David that instigated this matter? So, Father, we commit our time in the Word to you right now. We pray for open hearts. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be upon us so that we can be keen to hear what the Spirit is saying. I ask you to use me, God, this morning as your servant in the Word. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So on the surface, it doesn't seem like what David did in taking the census was really that bad. I mean, there are various census that have been taken in the Bible. Census was taken for war, and that was permitted, like we read in Numbers. Uh, Jesus even spoke in Luke 14 of how we need to count the number of men we have before we go to war. In Acts, we find out that there were 3,000 people saved and 5,000 people saved. So someone actually had to count those numbers to record that in the Bible. God says that the numbers of your hair on your head are counted. So what is the infraction in this story? Well, the issue is not the counting in and of itself. The issue is why are you doing it? What's the motive? And that's the key question at the heart of this story. David, King David, why did you do this? Well, part of the answer lies in David's age. We've walked through the highs and lows of David's life, and now we're in David's twilight years. He's at the end of his life, and what do men do when they look back on their lives? They ask, what did I accomplish? What's my legacy? Did my life make a difference? How many people did I impact? How big is my company? How much money did I make? What is my net worth? You want to measure it. You want to quantify your glory. But beloved, one of the punchlines of this story is don't do that. Don't try to quantify your glory because only God can do that. Rather count your blessings. David, you had so many blessings. The prophet Samuel, the great prophet Samuel, who never had a prophecy fail, came to you and your family, and he chose you out of all your brothers to be the king. What an honor and what a privilege. And then as you began to move into that position of royalty, God used you to defeat Goliath, who intimidated the entire army of Saul. And then God installed you as king at the age of 30, and you patted on your heart to make Jerusalem the eternal capital you moved from Hebron to Jerusalem, and there was something inside of you that sensed there was destiny about this little city on a hill called Jerusalem and that it would be the eternal capital. And I used you to establish Jerusalem as that eternal capital. And then when you got there, you had it on your heart to bring in the tabernacle, to bring in the Ark of the Covenant, and out of that, you established this whole doctrine of the tabernacle of David. And so powerful was this doctrine, it inserted itself and to Acts 15, a thousand years later, when the apostles were trying to decide, is circumcision part of salvation or not? And what did they do? They invoked your very doctrine that released evangelism to the ends of the earth. You were a poet extraordinaire, a musician extraordinaire, world class. And your writings have actually made it into the Bible. They weren't just inspired. They were divinely inspired. So much so that we count it as God's word. Those are your blessings. You should count them because when you count them, it leads to a deep sense of gratefulness. 
But counting your glory leads to pride. And that was David's fatal mistake. When you read the story, you kind of say to yourself, David, don't do this. You don't need to do this. What happened to that humble shepherd boy who said, who am I? Who am I, Lord, that you would select me? Who am I that King Saul would give his daughter to me? Who am I that you would give me an enduring rulership that will never come to an end? It was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Where has that humble shepherd boy gone? David, you've been in the cup of God's hand. He will reward you, so don't go there. First of all, you can't measure yourself properly. Your accounting is going to always be off. And secondly, whatever accounting you come up with, it's delusionary. You think that you have this glory or that you're this or that when you're not. God counts our glory in so many different ways than we do, so don't even try. Which brings us to the first thorny question that was given to us in the opening verse. Did God incite David to commit this sense of sin? Well, the answer is, of course not. God doesn't tempt or incite anyone to sin. James 1.13 says that God tempts no one. But the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, I think the slide will come up here, <coughs> gives us the commentary and insight on what's going on. The passage there in 1 Chronicles tells us that it was Satan that incited David to sin. Satan rose up against Israel and caused the king to take a census of the nation. In other words, the motivation, the inspiration for this sin was not God, but Satan who operated under the sovereignty of God. And because of this, because we see Satan's hand, we see his handiwork in the situation. Now remember, what was it that caused Satan to be cast out of heaven? He exalted himself. He was one of the angels that led heaven in song and in music. You can study this out in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. But Satan was caught up in his own glory. He exalted himself and his pride got him expelled from heaven. And that's what pride does. It casts us out from God's presence. Even amoral Joab, David's chief general, understood that what David did was just a ruse. This was not about counting the troops for war because they were in a peacetime. They didn't need to go to war. They didn't need to have the count. So King David, you're just counting these to measure your own strength and to measure your own glory. And the nation went along with it. Which answers the second difficult question of why Israel as a nation was judged along with David when it was David that started this whole thing. In verse 1, it says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, not just David. Well, the nation reveled in the prospect of knowing how great they were, how large their standing army would be, and how effective they would be in overcoming the battle odds. One of the things that the Israel armies were famous for was overcoming all odds. In Joshua, and Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, God says, I'm going to cause one to chase a thousand. Five will chase a hundred. 
two will chase 10,000. This is what the Israeli army was famous for, overcoming all odds. And this would just add to their shine. But God's wrath was against the nation for embracing nationalism and taking pride in their own strength and glory. That was a stench to God. Hence, in verse 13, we read that God gave David three options of judgment. Either you embrace three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of plague. <clears throat> well, David chose option three because he said, I'd rather fall into the hands of God than fall into the hands of men. So he chose option three, which was the three days of plague. And in those three days, 70,000 men were killed. 70,000 families were affected. 70,000 brothers, 70,000 uncles, dads. You know, we recently saw in India the mass graves from people that were dying from COVID. They couldn't keep up with the dead. They had to burn people in open fields. How do you bury 70,000 people in three days? The carnage was everywhere. And that's the devastating effect of pride. It spreads out and it spreads death. We have to stay away from pride like the plague. As Proverbs 16, 18 says, one of the most famous verses from Proverbs, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. That's why the Bible preaches so much on humility, preaches on how grace is released when we humble ourselves, but it blocks the grace of God. Pride blocks the grace of God. And you can't have a more vivid picture of death that accompanies pride than you see right here in this passage. Well, thankfully, the story doesn't end there as there was redemption. As the rest of the chapter tells us how David recovered from his sin. And it teaches us how to be restored when we've been struck down by our own prideful actions. So the first thing that this chapter tells us is that we need to repent from our pride from the depths of our heart. In verse 10, the scripture says that David was conscience-stricken. When was the last time you were stricken in your conscience where you felt that deep conviction that you had done something wrong? David said, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Now, when David says, I beg you, it doesn't mean that he's groveling. It doesn't mean that he's been reduced like to a dog, but it speaks of the deep emotion that was in of him. Like, God, I need you to forgive me. I'm begging you to forgive me. That's the kind of response we need in order to come clean. The first and all-important step to recovery is self-awareness and self-confession of your fault. The double trouble of pride is that not only does it corrupt you, but it blinds you from even knowing that you've got it. Thank God for our conscience. That, that moral barometer that God puts in every single person, whether you've heard about the Ten Commandments, whether you've heard about Jesus, God's natural common grace that he puts into us is a conscience. 
that moral sensitivity to right and wrong. And David was stricken in his conscience. Thank God for the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. Can you imagine a world where no one is aware of their sin? That would be frightening. You've got to get to the heart of the issue, which is your heart. Second thing that we see here is that we have to embrace our consequences. Verse 11, it says, when David got up in the morning and had finished his prayer, the word of the Lord came to Gad the prophet, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. And that's when the prophet laid out the three options. When we fall in into our prideful actions and we come to that place of brokenness, we also have to embrace the consequences. We need to submit to God's prophetic confrontation. In many ways, that stricken conscience is a confrontation from the Holy Spirit. Will you try to push it away? Will you try to minimize it? Or will you submit to it? Three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of plagues. We need to take it like a man without whining or minimizing. We also see here that it's important to turn your sorrow into action. Words are not enough. And God told David specifically, you need to build an altar. In verse 18, when the prophet came to David, he said, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. What God is saying is you need to memorialize your sin. Build an altar right here where the epicenter of your sin is, where the angel is carrying out the plagues. As you see there in verse 16, it says, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. We've been thrashed by our mistake. The chaff in our life needs to be blown away. This is an old agricultural technique when you bring in the harvest, if it's wheat, you put it on the ground and you want to separate the husk from the kernel. And so you can either stamp on the wheat or you can put wheels over it and crush it. And as the chaff and the kernels get separated from one another, you throw it up and you allow the breeze to blow off the chaff, and the kernels will fall to the ground. And this is a picture of how our pride causes us to be threshed. And God says to build an altar there to be reminded of your your mistake so that you don't repeat it again. This threshing floor has to be in a high place, meaning it has to be in a visible spot. Threshing floors were located on elevated places so the wind could come and blow away the chaff. And this memorial, in other words, David, that you are to build must be visible, not hidden in some corner, but it must be visible so you always have a sobering reminder that is ever present before your eyes. There needs to be a George Floyd memorial. It's an absolute must. The Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, that's a memorial to the Holocaust. Every person that ever goes to Jerusalem, you need to go to Yad Vashem. It will sober you and help you realize, is man this evil? Can we really do these things? 
When I was a teenager, I went to Dachau in Buchenwald. You talk about sobering. You talk about walking back into history and being horrified. These are all memorials that we need to have. And of late, the horrific grave sites of the indigenous people that were recently uncovered, their blood is crying up from the ground. That's why they've been discovered. Thank God for radar-penetrating technology. We need to memorialize our sin lest we do it again. You know, of all the social trauma that's been going on, started with the Me Too movement, despicable, be despicable behavior of men against women, and then Black Lives Matter, the entrenched systems and behaviors that have dehumanized the blacks. Asian lives matter. Racism that's bubbling just under the surface. And for some reason, emotionally, these residential school situations has gutted me the most. I have this acute feeling about God's compassion towards our First Nations brothers and sisters. From the time I was in high school when I went to my first discipleship camp that was focused on reaching Native Americans, to my college Cherokee buddy that went to Harvard Medical School, to living two blocks from an urban Indian reservation during my grad school years, I didn't realize it, but there was a leavening effect that clued me into their plight. There's 630 First Nation communities in our country. That's approximately 5% of our overall population. About 35 million people in Canada, 1.7 million are counted in those 630 First Nations communities. And I believe the horror is just beginning. I believe every province that has residential schools will find these graves. Words can't capture the grief. So God said to David, this is where you committed your mighty sin. Build an altar on this threshing floor. Memorialize your mistake. Now, we have altars to memorialize God's mighty acts. When Noah came out of the ark, first thing he did was build an altar. In fact, that's the first mention of an altar being built to the Lord. Abraham, when God made a covenant with him, he made an altar. Jacob, when he came to Bethel, he made an altar. Moses in Exodus 17, when he defeated the Amalekites, he constructed an altar. So we have altars to memorialize God's incredible acts, but we also have altars to help us memorialize our sins so that we never forget them. We need to turn our sorrow into action. Words are not enough. Those altars are crucial. Fourth thing here <clears throat> is that your mistake needs to cost you something, monetarily or otherwise. When David came to the threshing floor, the actual plot of land that Aruna owned, he saw the king coming and he bowed down and he said, whatever you need, whatever you want, it's yours. And David said to Aruna, I will not buy, I will not offer any birth sacrifice that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the implements of that threshing floor 
and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. It cost David something. And when you read the companion passage in 1 Chronicles 21, David also ended up paying 600 shekels of gold for the entire property, not just the one place where they threshed out the harvest. This is how justice strikes a clean blow to our soul over our sin. There has to be a price to be paid that makes you feel the hurt. This is the scourging that we need. Proverbs 20.30 says, Bruising wounds clean away evil and blows cleanse the innermost parts. We need to experience the pain of justice in our being. Just this week, the sentence of Derek Chauvin, the man who killed George Floyd, his sentence was announced. His sentencing mattered because there has to be pain that goes with it. Injustice is when someone gets off scot-free or when someone gets off lightly. The sentencing guidelines said that Chauvin should have got 12 and a half years of jail time. But the judge added another 10 years due to extenuating circumstances in which he abused his power and took advantage of a man who was severely compromised. 22 and a half years. Some people wanted 30. Some people wanted 40. Whether the number was right or wrong, the principle is there has to be some pain when you do something wrong because that pain reminds you and keeps you from doing evil again. You know, we're visceral people. In other words, we have physical bodies. So much of our lives is around our physicality. Oh, it's so hot. I'm so thirsty. I'm so tired. I'm so hungry. Those are all physical features that God has built into us. We have the spiritual being inside a physical temple. And so part of the ways that God speaks to us is through physicality. When we experience the pain in our heart or we experience literal physical pain. That's how justice works. So our mistake needs to cost us something, and David understood that. I'm not going to take this plot of land for free. I'm not going to take this threshing floor, floor for free. I'm going to pay of my own money. It's going to cost me something. But the story ends on this note, that God's heart is for redemption and not destruction. History tells us that Aruna's threshing floor is where Abraham sacrificed Isaac nearly a thousand years earlier. That's amazing. And it's also the place where Jesus would ultimately die on the cross a thousand years later. So a thousand years previous, this is where Abraham sacrificed his son. Now we have this altar, and then a thousand years later, Jesus would die on the cross in Jerusalem on this very hill. Mount Moriah and Mount Calvary are on the same site. God's heart is to restore us, to redeem us, and he will provide for our sins. In the Hebrew, aruna means, I shall shout for joy. Now clearly that was not a moment where David was shouting for joy, but that was the end picture of where God was bringing him. The threshing floor represented Mercy triumphing over judgment. And we get this final important detail again in 1 Chronicles 21. It's not mentioned here in 
2 Samuel 24. But when David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering and then the plague was stopped. In other words, the sacrifice was accepted. David was forgiven. God brought closure to the matter and David could move on emotionally from his terrible mistake. What a gift from the Lord. We are made whole again from our sin. So this brings us to the end of the record in 2 Samuel 24. We are ending with a cautionary tale about King David's life. You know, when you reach great heights like David, you need to be careful for the deadly sin of pride. How many times have we seen this? People that you know, come into great fame, great notoriety, great riches, and then they have this precipitous fall. It just happens over and over again. And so when you reach great heights, you have to be careful for the sin of pride. Don't let Satan incite you. Count your blessings, but not your glory. Stay humble and end well. God knows your glory, and he will reward you. Let him do it, but don't take it upon yourself to do it. And after David was forgiven and he passed on, this is exactly what God did. He rewarded him. God's summary of David's life was he was a man after God's, God's heart who did all his will and served God in his generation. Friends, if God said that about me, I'm good for eternity. He knows how to reward us. So Jesus, we take heart from what we've learned and what we've read this morning. We see the deadly effects and the deadly consequences of pride and how even someone as close to you as David fell and was susceptible to this. So we cry out for your grace, God, to keep us in a humble place, in a measured place. Lord, we count our blessings and we're so grateful for your generosity, but we don't want to count our glory. We give you thanks, we give you praise. Lord, continue to speak to us in this hour. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, Lord, it's on your authority. You know, I just think that it was such an apt song to end with today because, you know, when you, when you start speaking of pride, there's this part of our, our spirit that sits there and goes, oh, I need to work on that. And the fact that we put I need to work in there is exactly the problem. It's, it's our pride. It's when we talk of, of pride, this is not something we can fix ourselves. This is something that we need to take to the Lord. This is something that we need his authority to break in our lives. You know, I think I love the way, you know, you look at that site, that threshing floor. It's, it's where Abraham offered Isaac. It's where David paid his wealth for that, for that land. And then it's ultimately where, where Jesus dies. And you see two cases of where our sacrifices aren't enough. We are not able to offer what the Lord has already given to us. We cannot offer our children. We cannot offer our wealth. God had to come in and break that, and break that cycle of, of death and bring in that redemption. So, you know, this week as you're processing the word, and I think every one of us can, can have a, 
have work to do in the matter of pride. I, I can't remember who it was, but I remember there was, I think it was one of the American, uh, you know, fathers of independence that, you know, he said that he would track his sins and track his good deeds. And every time that he would erase a mark for pride because he hadn't done something prideful or sorry, he'd done something in humility that day, he would then have to add a mark to pride. And that just goes to show how it, it's really not about us. We, we will never get out of this cycle on our own. It is, it is only by grace and mercy. So Lord, we just thank you this week. We just thank you that you, you left us this story, this, this warning of not to look to the things of earth to, to gain our worth, to understand what we've accomplished, but that instead we are to look to you. You know, how much better would it have been if David, instead of counting the, the land, had released something that talked about all the blessings that you had given into his life and how those had gone out and multiplied in the land. How much more people would have been just that much stronger in their faith to you? And so, Lord, we just, uh, yeah, just pray this week, Lord, that as we look to our own pride, we look to the things that we have created little strongholds, little little safes of of things that we hold that we have we have built our worth on lord that you would show us how you see our worth that you would show us how much we are worth to you and we would see how much greater that number is lord so we just thank you this morning that you came that you worshiped that you were here with us that you were here in rich's words and we just thank you that you are with us each and every moment of every day, Lord. Amen. Have a great week. Stay cool. And uh, yeah, please, please try and stay cool. <laughs>